Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, what's going on? Got a great show lined up for us today, Eric. Excited about I, today's guest. Yeah, I, I know you've got a great show lined up because got a chance to, to meet the guest a little bit before we hit the record button. She is fantastic. I'm so excited to hear what you guys are talking about. What is that today? So today we're going to be talking about planning for the people in your life as well as your property upon your death and incapacity, which I'm sure is not the most exciting topic, but it's a super <laughs> important one. So we're going to give you an overview of estate planning today. We're going to get into to some specifics on some things that people need to be aware of and uh, you know, what process they should be looking to engage in to take care of these things. So just at the outset, I want to say that great estate planning leaves nothing to chance. We yeah. don't want to make any assumptions. We don't, don't just want to think that uh, you know, the way things work logically in my mind, it's going to pan out that way in real life because laws are really complicated. And what might seem logical in our minds may not be the reality under the law. So we're going to talk about three steps today that every family can take to make sure that their family and their finances are properly structured and they're cared for from a legal standpoint. So with me today is our guest, attorney Brooke McMorrow. She is the founder of McMorrow Law, located in Wexford, Pennsylvania. So Brooke, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jim. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So uh, just tell us a little bit about your firm and the areas of practice that your firm handles. Sure. Um, so I have a practice in Wexford, as you said. Um, we also have offices in Beaver, Pennsylvania. We handle about half and half estate planning, estate administration, guardianship, trust work. If people pass away or are planning properly, we're usually the people to call for that type of thing. But the other part of my practice is family law, whether it's divorce, custody, child support, that kind of thing. And oftentimes we find that um, estate work along with family law, they, they intersect at times. So, but yeah, that's, those are the types of things that we, we do here. So when we look at the topic of estate planning, I think this can be something that can be a little intimidating for some folks and not really knowing where to start. So where should people really begin? What are the kinds of documents they should be setting up and what are some of the considerations they should be making on the outset? Sure. Well, with each person that I meet with, I tell them no matter how much or how little you have, each person should have the basic documents. Now, there's a little bit of wiggle room as to whether or not you need a revocable living trust. So I usually go with the three basic documents, one being a will, two, a financial power of attorney, and three, an advanced healthcare directive. The other, the outlier that I mentioned just a second ago is a trust, and we'll talk more about that later. But there's there's various reasons why you might want it and why some people don't want it. But at the very least, a will, a power of attorney, and a healthcare directive. So when I'm having conversations with people about estate planning, it's, it's pretty common that folks say, you know, I, I know I need to get a will done, or hey, I did one years ago, 
and it's probably really outdated at this point. But I think a lot of folks are a little bit less familiar with the power of attorney document and the living will. So can you just go into a little bit about what those documents do? Sure. So a financial power of attorney gives someone else the power to make financial decisions for you and take financial actions for you. It's a really important power. And like my younger clients are like, well, wait, I don't know why I would need something like this. I'm not going into a nursing home or anything like that, but you can use it for routine matters. I oftentimes use the example where I had to get a boat registered out of state in Ohio. And my husband said, Brooke, I waited in line at the the DMV there and they need you to come out as well to sign the paperwork. And I said, I'm not missing a day of work. I handed him my power of attorney. He took it with him and boom, done. Didn't have to miss a day of work. Got the title transferred over, no problem. But it is particularly important to have, no matter what age you are, as long as you're an adult, because we don't know what our health is going to be like. And although not as common, younger people sometimes can have health issues that would render them unable to conduct their financial affairs. So a power of attorney could be the ability to pay bills for somebody, to inquire about an account to change beneficiaries of a retirement account, a life insurance policy, to settle a court case. So there's there's lots of different things and you appoint somebody who you trust implicitly. Pennsylvania is very strict about financial powers. Um, it needs to, any actions I should say, that your agent, your appointed agent takes on your behalf really needs to be within your reasonable expectations and in your best interests, not theirs. And it's very important that this document is up to date with current laws. Uh, we did have a law change in on January 1st of 2015. And not that it rendered the old ones invalid, but unfortunately, a lot of financial institutions are not honoring them. So very important document to have, but you only want to pick somebody who you trust implicitly because it can be used whether you're fine or you're not fine. You just have to be alive. Now, with regard to the Advanced Healthcare Directive, that document serves two purposes. The first purpose is a healthcare power of attorney. So this would be for some teen. So if I go to the doctor and I have to have some procedure where they're going to put me under anesthesia and I, you know, I can't make decisions for myself while I'm under, I can appoint somebody who can make those decisions for me. Um, so I think one of the major differences between the advanced healthcare directive and a financial power of attorney is that with the healthcare directive, you are not able to communicate your decisions for yourself. Whereas with the financial power of attorney, you can be fine and you can just want somebody else to do your your job for you and they can A little bit of convenience. And, exactly, exactly. So the second part about the Advanced Healthcare Directive serves as a living well. So if you should be in a coma or state of permanent unconsciousness or in an end-stage medical condition, this tells whoever you haven't whoever you've appointed to be your agent what you want to happen do you want to have aggressive medical care or just keep you comfortable and allow natural death to occur it really takes the onus off of your family or friends from having to make those tough decisions and they can kind of hang their hat on this document and it frankly makes people feel less guilty um, so very important and you certainly don't want to have 
your family fighting over, you know, whether or not to quote unquote, pull the plug. So this, this really alleviates that necessity. So if somebody doesn't have a will and mm -hmm. they pass away, what happens? What could go wrong? How does it impact our kids? Okay. So it's so important to have a will. I can't tell you how many times I hear from people who state that they don't need any, they know that everything will go to their spouse or everything will go to their kids or something like that. That is not true in the state of Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, if you die what we call intestate, which means without a will, the your your spouse will not receive 100% of your estate, okay, if there are children involved. So whether they're children from your marriage with your spouse or if they're children from a previous marriage, if, if they're around your spouse upon your death, your widow or widower is not going to get 100% unless the kids want to give it to that spouse of yours. So really important to plan a plan appropriately to avoid those problems because they do crop up and so many assumptions are made and that's not the case. There's a difference in Pennsylvania. If they're children of that marriage, the spouse gets the first 30,000 and then they get one half of the estate. The children get the other half and that may not be the intention um, or I guess your intention, if you're the one that passes away, you're assuming that your spouse gets everything and that's just simply not the case. So, so can the spouse challenge that? I mean, can they go to court and try to you know, basically lobby, you know, lobby their case and say, Hey, you know, I, I need more than half. I mean, what, what does that involve? I mean, you can do a will contest. Um, you can do what's called, if you're the spouse, you can do what's called an elective share and make sure that you at least get what you're entitled to under the law. But other than that, there's not a whole heck of a lot that you can do. We just had a case recently where the husband named his wife as a beneficiary of the will, which was good, but unfortunately she predeceased. And then he appointed his children to take after that. Unfortunately, he didn't have children. So mm. now we're in litigation defining who are children and who are stepchildren because oh, wow. these the kids are actually stepchildren and my my clients are the family of the decedent who don't want the stepchildren to get the oh, money wow. so you want to avoid those kinds of things in court if you can because it can get very expensive and last a long time and what about if if the children are under the age of 18 how does that complicate things okay well you children are not permitted to take money outright if they are minor, so under 18 years of age. So if you leave something to, to a child outright, it's not going to go to them right away. It's going to force um, whoever their caregiver is or their parent or family member to petition the court that a temporary limited guardianship be set up in order to transfer whatever funds were given to them and put it into a restricted account that uh, may or may not be able to be touched um, until they are 18. And if you think of that and how mature kids are when they're 18 and what their needs might be before they're 18, there's multiple implications. One, if you need, if the caregiver needs money for that child before they turn 18, they're going to have to petition the court just to get money to take little Susie on a, on a study abroad trip or, or a band camp or something like that, which can, 
can be avoided if proper planning's in place. And then if you think about it, when somebody's 18, is that something, is that large amount of money or small amount of money, depending on what it is, is that really the intent, the intention of the testator, the person whose will it is, to give a large sum of money to the an ultimate birthday gift. Happy birthday. Yes, Here's yes. hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions. What could possibly go wrong? Exactly. They could have a great party. And Absolutely. they could also give all their friends money and they could buy a very awesome car. So definitely to prevent that from going wrong, that's why people create the estate plan. But I think, you know, a lot of people prevent, or they, I shouldn't say they prevent, they, they hesitate to get this done because I think they're not sure what to expect. I think it's going to be difficult, expensive, time consuming. What What's the process like? How involved does a client need to be to get this taken care of? We make it really easy. And I imagine it's 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 pretty uniform, but we, we try to streamline the process for our clients. It typically involves a brief questionnaire that needs to be filled out that tells us who you want to get what, who you want to be in charge, that's in charge of your estate, in charge of the kid's money, which would be a trustee, because we always put in a minor's trust. If if there's even a remote possibility of a minor child inheriting money, we always put that minor's trust in so we can avoid what we were just talking about and having to go to court. And we, we want to see who is going to be the guardian of a minor child in case the, the parents are deceased. Um, we want to have a backup plan, and that gives you know parents of minor children some peace of mind. Excellent. So step one, just to get the fundamental documents, the, the will, the, uh, the powers of attorney, you know, something to deal with, uh, you know, healthcare, like a living will. Yes. Step two, you mentioned the trust and, you know, step two is really, especially for more complex situations, you know, using a trust to your advantage. And there's various types of trusts. Uh, why don't we just start off with just talking about what a trust is and what it can accomplish just in a more of a high level overview before we start getting into some specifics. Sure. So trusts, they're another vehicle for disposing of your property. Um, and there's all different kinds of trusts that serve many different purposes. But I can say that one that we see very often besides a miner's trust, which is a testamentary trust, meaning that it doesn't come into play until you die. And we only put it in your will. So it's not like you have to go to the bank and set up an account during your lifetime. But the other type that I wanted to talk about is what we call a revocable living trust, which means it is a trust that you are in power of. You're not giving up power to anybody else. You can have successor trustees, but you kind of command, you know, what happens with your money, who gets what. So it's, it's, it's a lot like a will, but you can, you can change it at any time, maintain control of it. But what I would say one of the biggest benefits of a, of a revocable living trust is that upon your passing, you completely avoid the probate process and you don't have to go through the courts to administer an estate. Um, and that I want to put the disclaimer in that's provided you've titled everything properly. <laughs> and in the name of the trust, it can be seamless and very quick. And there's there's a lot of benefits to a revocable living trust. Yeah, folks I've talked to who've had a you know a family member pass away and they were named executor of the estate, it, it can be a real mess to try to figure out, you know, what did they have, where was it located, and, and it can really take quite a bit of time to get through the court system and get the money dispersed, but that revocable living trust can certainly make things a lot more convenient. Well, let's talk about, you know, funding that trust. Is that something that uh, you see people wait until 
they're much older in life, or do you have some clients that are younger that start to fund the trust, uh, you know, at a younger age, knowing that they can still get access to the money? I do. I have people of all ages that do it, and and they do it for different reasons. So again, one of the biggest advantages is for the ease upon your death. But another advantage or reason to have a revocable living trust is if you have out-of-state property, because that trust, that travels with you, and you can go in any of our states here in the U.S., and it's a portable document that can be used. And all you need to do, if you want to sell your vacation home in Hilton Head, you have your your binder with your, with your revocable trust in it, and you have a death certificate, and you don't have to go through courts. Nobody has to approve it is very seamless. So out-of-state property is really a, another big reason. And then it avoids creditors. So when you go through the probate process, if you have a will and you happen to have creditors upon your death, those creditors get put on notice and they have to be paid before your, your heirs can get paid. This, if you have a revocable living trust, it avoids creditors being notified of your passing and any access to your assets. I also think that an important part or an important reason for having a revocable living trust is privacy. Your estate is not made public. I will say that in Pennsylvania, you still have to file what's called an inheritance tax return, and that can be a public document, so you're not totally avoiding it, whether you do a trust or not. But it minimizes the public's access to what you died, what your assets were upon your death. So I think that that can be appealing to some people. And frankly, there are some people that have had a nightmarish experience going through probate, and they don't want to do it again, so they're willing to spend the extra money to get a revocable living trust in place so that their family or their heirs don't have to go through the probate process. But with that being said, Jim, I would say, and I tell my clients this, the probate process does not have to be a bad thing. And it, it really just depends on who's in charge and how motivated they are. There are some things that are out of outside of that person's control, but for the most part, it can be, it, it can be rather easy but it's just not as easy as if you had a revocable living trust. One thing I, I think that a lot of people have in their minds about trust is they, they think of it as this you know, really complicated document that is really just reserved for ultra wealthy people. But when you think about it from the, the beneficiary standpoint, you know, if somebody's inheriting money, what are some advantages to inheriting money inside of a trust versus receiving that money just outright in your own hands? Hmm. So are you meaning like during their lifetime or, or after death? Well, I'm saying that after, let's say that uh, somebody's parents pass away okay, and they were leaving money to their children uh, via a trust versus just, you know, having cash sent to them you know, via an insurance policy or retirement account. You know, if they receive money that, that comes to them in the protection of a trust, what are some additional benefits they might get as a beneficiary? versus just having the money dropped into their own hands? Well, it can be segregated, so it can protect the children in case they ha are having marital issues. And if there's a divorce on the horizon or a divorce in process, it can protect the money. It can protect the money potentially from the children's creditors rather than giving it to them outright. So there are some benefits of doing that as well. 
And one thing that I know you do a lot of work in this area and so do, so do we is, you know, when you have a family member that has some serious health concerns and, you know, we might have a situation where there's government benefits that either they're entitled to now or may become entitled to in the future. Let's talk a little bit about the role of a special needs trust and, and why that's so critical for families that are in that situation. Well, if you think about it, Jim, if you have a child with special needs, at some point they're likely going to be eligible for some kind of governmental benefit, um, usually SSI, it could be Medicaid or medical assistance, and you don't want to make them ineligible for those benefits because it's free money that is there to provide for your for your disabled child. So the benefit of having a special needs trust, and they're also called supplemental needs trusts, is that you can put money aside for that child into the trust that can supplement, not replace, but supplement what the government's providing. Because it's really not a lot of money that the that SSI provides. I do a lot of work with the special needs community, and I want to say that it's anywhere between like $650 to maybe $850 a month, plus a little stipend from Pennsylvania. And that's the only cash that these children have to live on, these adult children. So it, it's it's not a lot. And if you want to buy some piece of equipment that it's just not, you don't have the funds for through the government or they're not going to cover if there's some special therapy that would enhance that child's life, that's what the extra monies in a special needs trust could be used for. You have to be really careful though, if you want to give monies to a special needs child, whether they're still a child or they're an adult, you'd never wanna give it to them outright. You wanna to talk to their parent or their caregiver to ensure that there's a special needs trust in place. So that way, it goes in there and it never passes through their hands because if it passes through their hands, it could very likely make them ineligible for their governmental benefits and the government would require that child to spend down the that gifted money and then they would have to reapply to become eligible again, which everyone wants to avoid. Right. And a lot of these programs are under, they're under serious funding pressure and you know we want to make sure that uh, any benefits the child is entitled to, they get now because we don't know what the future of these programs are going to look like. Exactly. So it can really be a great way to provide, I mean, because we talk about this all the time with just the pressure to save and prepare for retirement. That's not easy for anybody. But when your money has to last, not just your lifetime, but also take care of your child's lifetime as well, every dollar counts. So if we can have a way to pass money to the kids and still keep them eligible for these government benefits, you're really able to stretch these resources. Uh, but That's there's, right. there's some things that can go wrong, though. What are some considerations that people should at least be aware of? Because they may do their own planning very well and everything is really buttoned up real nice, but there may be some other things around them that they didn't think to even ask that could impact it, like grandparents, aunts, uncles. What are some things that could go wrong with some of these special needs trusts? Well, you again, if there's, you know, if it's Christmas time, we want to make sure that gifts are given directly to the trust. If grandma wants to treat all the children equally, okay, the grandchildren equally, I should say, and doesn't know that there's a trust in place or there isn't a trust in place, that can be a problem. 
So what, what, what we have to do in those situations, and it is common that people don't know or they don't have the money to get a special needs trust done or they never knew they had to have it done, we end up um, getting contacted to put together what's called a self-settled trust, which means that the money can still go to the disabled child or grandchild, but unfortunately it's in a payback type of trust where upon that child's passing, any monies that, that are left over end up getting paid back to the government for all of the SSI that they provided and possibly for Medicaid before any, I guess, remainder beneficiaries would get anything that's left over in that trust. And clearly that wouldn't be somebody's intent to do that. So proper planning would avoid that occurrence. Yeah, because I think a lot of these topics are obviously very sensitive, they're personal, and it's just not a common occurrence that when you sit down for a family barbecue, it's like, hey, mom, dad, how, what's in your trust? What's in your will, right? People just always talk about these things. So I think what we found is that a lot of people's hearts are in the right places. You know, maybe grandma and granddad did their estate plan years ago and never updated it. But that document might give all the grandchildren an equal amount of money. And that creates a situation that, that Brooke's describing here where it goes to the child directly. And now they have to get into that self-settled type of a trust. But I guess what, what could be done proactively in a situation like that? So grandma and granddad can pass money to the grandkids without, without uh, you know, impacting the government benefits. Well, they could do lifetime gifting upon a trust being set up and, and grandma and grandpa could set up a special needs trust or a supplemental needs trust for that child. Mom and dad can do it and fund the trust so that way it is strictly for that disabled child or grandchild's benefit, but that money's never gonna be handed out right to that child. So it's just really communicating proper planning and seeing an attorney to make sure that those documents are in place. What about people that have money in the child's name already? And they're saying, hey, they're, they're probably going to be eligible for benefits sooner rather than later. And they want to move that money out of the child's name. Any landmines there to be aware of? Uh, yeah, I'm glad you said landmines, Jim, because I think that that is a big landmine and you can get in trouble for doing that. Again, if there's money in the child's name, we can't. I mean, there's a paper trail. You're not tricking anyone by taking it out of their name and rushing and hiding it somewhere else because banks have paperwork and statements and paper trails. So, that, I mean, it's it's fraud and you could get in trouble from a criminal level. So I, w I would avoid doing that. Yeah, not a good idea to be wearing an orange suit for trying, no. to, uh, <laughs> trying to work on these things here. But, you know, they, I guess they could spend the assets down on the child's care now and, and just, you know, position them to be eligible later. But you definitely can't move money out of your kid's name into your name. That's a no -no. That's correct. Yes. What, what about other little uh, cleanup things that people should be doing? If, if you're going to take the time to do the estate planning properly, what are some cleanup items that really have to be handled so this all works properly? Okay. So now, do you mean within the within the realm of special needs trust or just estate planning in general? Just estate planning in general, because I, sure. I see a lot of people that go through the effort and they go, finally, the project's done, and have their documents, and then they don't follow through with certain other tasks. Sure. So first of all, you want to look at your estate plan, look at your estate planning documents every three to five years to see if anything has changed. People die, people get married, babies are born. 
I'm not sure if I already said people get divorced, but um, <laughs> those types of things you want to be able to update because somebody that was like beloved to you, they might have done something very bad and now you want to cut them out. So that's number one. Number two is there's other ways that you can avoid probate and make it really easy for your family, like changing your titling on things on assets. So if if you have a house, that's just in your name and it's not in your spouse's name. Why don't we why don't we get the deed redone and add them on so that way it passes seamlessly by operation of law. Let's look at retirement accounts, life insurance policies, even bank accounts and see how they're titled and also if there are beneficiaries who they are. You should definitely have beneficiary designations on your retirement accounts and your investment accounts if you can. Um, and life insurance policies, because otherwise it's going to go through probate and it's going to be opening opened up for for creditors and and for the Department of Court Records to take a cut on their filing fee because <laughs> they go by the value of those we, assets. We don't want that. Yeah, and no. updating beneficiary designations, even even retitling accounts, is not real difficult. It's it's a, a few forms you fill out and and you're done. Right. So it's nothing nothing too complicated. Let's shift gears here a little bit because we talked a lot about documents that people need. We talked about you know, the uses of trust. But I think the third step here is to really make sure that you know, we're protecting the people too. And, and really when we think about our children and protecting their best interests, I think a lot of people have some assumptions of, well, these are my children. And when they hit a certain age, this is just the way you know, things are gonna go. But it, it's not really the way it works under the law. So can you talk a little bit about you know, guardianship uh, when the when children are little and mom and dad pass away, or even if mom and dad are alive and the child, especially in a situation where there's you know special needs, that the child turns 18, the mom and dad think they still have the same rights. Can you talk a little bit about guardianships and alternatives to that? Of course. So first, the easy one. If you have minor children, you should have the will because we're going to put a guardianship provision in it as to who you want to take care of your child in the event that you and the other parent are not able to because you've passed away. And if you do that, it really alleviates any legal battles because it shows a clear intent as to who you want to, to take over for you. And that's really important. And it is also important to talk to those people that you're appointing beforehand to make sure they're up to up for the task. I, I found that out that my, my single brother in Boston, I had appointed him and I didn't ask him. And then after I did, he said, you know, I'm, I'm single and I'm not really looking to have all your kids, Brooke, um, if you and Pete die. So, you know, I've had to re realign my own estate planning for that. But as far as children are disabled or they have special needs, parents have a really hard time believing and following through with getting a guardianship over their child. Not all children that have special needs need a guardianship, but if they can't receive and evaluate information independently to make informed decisions about their personal health and safety or their finances or medical care, they're gonna need a guardian. And parents come to me, I just had somebody yesterday that came to me about this and said, well, I'm still their parent. What do I just lose my job when because they turned 18? And I said, yeah, basically in the eyes of the law, you did. Um, and it doesn't seem fair and it doesn't seem right, but here in America, we value people's independence. And so when they turn 18, 
they have free reign to do whatever they want and make poor decisions if they want to or exercise, you know, bad judgment. And that's supposed to be okay. So I oftentimes have parents who, if they sense, you know, that their their child's birthday is going to be coming up soon, their 18th birthday, they'll contact me proactively to get a special needs guardianship going. And I tell them, well, let's get all of our ducks in a row. And then upon your child's 18th birthday, we just had one in July where we had planned six months out to file basically on their 18th birthday so that the, the so that there's really not a lapse in time where that parent or those parents can make medical and financial decisions for their child um, while they're waiting for a court hearing. Usually you get a court hearing within about 30 to 60 days after the child's 18th birthday. But with that being said, I have numerous clients that come to me when their child is 50 and the parent is elderly and is having health issues. And they say, and I say to them, how have you gotten by this far without ever (laughs) having to, um, you know, overcome HIPAA rules? And they say, oh, well, the doctors would just have my child sign this. And I said, but if they don't have the, the cognitive ability to understand it, the doctor probably shouldn't have done that. So I tell them that they've been lucky, but that luck's gonna run out because the the medical providers and the financial institutions are getting more and more finicky about this. So it's really important not to wait on getting a guardianship for your special needs child after they turn 18 because you don't want to be in a situation where there is an urgent matter, a medical issue where you have to rush into court to get one on an emergency basis and and try to find a doctor that, that will testify on 24 hours notice because that can be sort of a nightmare. So Brooke, what's a what's a good time frame for parents to start thinking about this? Is it is it something maybe it's you know when they turn seventeen? Do you think they should start thinking about this sooner than? I think that um, you know the earlier the better because usually with that conversation that I have with clients or potential clients, we talk about special needs trusts as well, and that's something that can be done before a child turns eighteen. And then we calendar out when the child's going to turn 18 so that all of our papers are ready and that they're, you know, they're filed on their 18th birthday or the next business day after. So I would say, you know, anywhere from a month before to a year before, totally fine. I'll talk to people whenever. I have sometimes people call me when their kid is five years old. And obviously, might I'm probably not going to calendar it out that far. <laughs> not but, yet, yeah. But but yeah, but but certainly discussing special needs trusts. Right. Yeah, and I think a lot of people just assume that again they're going to be able to make these decisions like we talked about earlier. But you know, under the law, the the kids are considered a a legal competent adult as soon as they turn eighteen. So this guardianship can be really important, but. Is that really all or nothing? Because it, you know, it can be it can be pretty broad and powerful, or can it be more specific? Yeah, I mean, there can be limited guardianships for certain purposes. Um, it, they can be temporary at times, like if there's some kind of an injury, you know, a, a I guess a brain injury, and there's a recovery. My goodness, of course, like that, those things can change. Guardianships can be terminated, but I don't know if that answered your question, Jim. Well, yeah, because I'm I'm thinking of a situation where you know maybe somebody's uh, yeah they're able to you know, hold that employment and function on their own, but they're maybe they they just don't have the ability to manage their finances at all. 
Yes. And can you have a guardianship specific to finances, but not to healthcare decisions? Yes. And, and we do have that from time to time where somebody can hold down a job, they're bagging groceries at, at Giant Eagle and they're getting a paycheck. But the fear is that anybody who asks them for money, they would just gra gladly hand over their full paycheck to just any, you know, Tom, Dick or Harry that, that asks them for it. So we want to avoid those folks getting taken advantage of by somebody if they don't have the cognitive ability to say no now if they do and then they just they're just really generous that's a different story but yeah you can do it just for medical you can do it just for finance financial but i would say most often times it's together so i guess to just to wrap things up here you know, some of the topics we discussed are they're complicated right and you don't need to be an expert in all these things in fact that's one of the themes of the show is is you know who should i be working with not how does every little detail of these things work so if you don't want to leave your family's well-being and their financial resources a chance you really need to take the time to make sure that you implement a, a complete estate plan make sure you're using trust effectively and you plan out who's going to look after your children so i guess brooke just to, to wrap things up if somebody wants to get started and at least just have an initial conversation how would they go about doing that how do they contact you if they if they're interested and yeah, do you guys charge the first meeting? Like, how does that work? Sure. So typically, if somebody wanted to get started, they would contact my office and schedule an initial consultation, which is free. It's a 30-minute consultation. And usually during that consultation, I find out what the needs are. And usually pretty early on, I can tell if, it, if we're doing just the basic three documents or if it's a more, I guess, complicated estate, if there's some family dynamic issues that we have to go through and make sure that we, you know, disinherit somebody or that there's a no contest clause. But again, that is, you know, a free initial consult. And then we get you paperwork, an engagement letter, uh, a worksheet that goes through what information we need from you. And then as soon as, you know, we're retained with our fee, we get started and, and it can be done, you know, as in as early as 24 hours. I think that's the quickest I've had to do it when somebody was leaving for an international trip the next day. But usually, you know, we ask for a couple of weeks of turnaround time and we really usually, I would say 99% of the time, those are flat fee engagements so that if you have questions, we want people to ask those questions and not feel like a meter's running and they're, they're not being billed by the hour for asking very important questions. And for that first meeting, is there homework involved typically, or is it more of just a, a sit down and, and just kind of going through what their needs are and what you provide and seeing if there's a fit? Yep. I think more of the latter. It's, it's, it's rather brief. Um, rarely does it get to even a half an hour because I have some pretty key questions that I ask and I can tell what you're going to need if you come to me with questions maybe you got maybe you went to some seminar where you think that you need all this other stuff we'll go through that as well fantastic so brooke if somebody wants to reach out to you and they want to connect with you or your firm what's the best way to reach you sure we have a great client coordinator here at our firm and you can just call us at 724-940-0100 and schedule a consult you can email me my email is brooke uh, with an E at mcmorrowlaw.com. And we're, we're online. We have a website, mcmorrowlaw.com. Um, you can check out our reviews on avo, that's A-V-V-O.com. And 
drop us a line. And, and sometimes, you know, if, if you're not ready, you might be ready a year from now, but I'm still happy to talk to you. Fantastic. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I think uh, there's a lot of great points, and hopefully our audience uh, pulled a lot from this, that estate planning is not scary. You just have to take the first step, and uh, it, is not, it is not a long process to get these important items handled. So, Eric, let me turn it back over to you to wrap us up. Absolutely. Brooke, thank you so much for being here. I, I've got to say that as you were speaking, one of the things that you brought up actually made me kind of cringe inside because I, I do know a family that was affected by some grandparents that, although well-meaning, um, they left a large lump sum to a disabled child, somebody with special needs, who was living and thriving in a wonderful group home uh, situation. Uh, but because it was not structured properly, um, they lost their placement in that group home because they all of a sudden they had all this money that was obviously very, very traceable, like you said. And of course, the grandparents never meant for anything like that to happen. Um, but those are true stories that do happen just because of the rules that everybody has to play by in the, in the sandbox there. And Jim, I know that you work with folks and families with special needs, and I want you to be able to give your contact information. I mean, this is your show. This is why you do this so that people can be educated. If there are grandparents out there or, or even relatives, you know, uh, distant relatives that want to leave funds for someone who has special needs, there's, there's right ways and wrong ways. So can you give them your contact information so they can have that conversation with you? Absolutely. You can just drop us a, an email at info at mcgovernwealth.com or you can also visit us on our website www.mcgovernwealth.com and uh, and reach out i mean we're here to help if you have a question we don't want you to you know, spend all this time trying to figure this out on your own on the internet what's what we're yeah. here for and we're, we're happy to be of assistance jim is so much better than google okay so just just give, give, give jim a call uh, brooke again thank you so much for being here jim of course thank you so much for facilitating this and bringing this to the audience and of course our last thank you is for you the listening audience thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the maximizing outcomes podcast with jim mcgovern if you have not subscribed to the podcast yet please click the subscribe now button below this way when jim comes out with a new podcast it'll show up directly on your listening device and we humbly ask that you share this podcast rate it and leave a review as this actually does help others find the show Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. Guardian, New York, New York.
PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number 0F67329 AR Insurance License Number 7119103 California Insurance License Number 0F67329 Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103 Compliance Number 2022-142089